We started our service out with a tribute to veterans who have served in our armed forces. And what a good picture of some veterans of Christian ministry and service to the Lord. I have to collect myself a bit here, but it is just joy. It is is great to see the joy of someone uh, of a family who have given their lives for the sake of the cause of Jesus Christ. And uh, it's a call to those of us who are here uh, to be willing to go, to minister, and to serve the Lord. Uh, <clears throat> it's great to hear them sing. Some of you asked questions about the saw, uh, whether or not he was going to sing with the saw. We'll have to arrange that at some other point in the future, I guess. Uh, Brother Templeton plays a mean saw when he uh, sings as well, so maybe we could arrange that on a Wednesday night or something uh, as well. So we uh, turn our attention to the scriptures in the book of Philippians. Uh, We look at uh, Philippians chapter 3 this morning. I'd invite you to turn there in your Bible, and as I walk through this text with you briefly, I will try to uh, paint a picture of Paul's emphasis here. Of course, last week, uh, we began to see that Paul's emphasis was on a mindset focused on Jesus Christ. If you remember, we saw two ways that people respond to Christ in uh, verses 1 through 7. Um, There were the Jewish false teachers who did not make much of Christ at all. They boasted or gloried in their own flesh, their own works, and the the physical act of circumcision. Yet Paul also describes himself and some other genuine believers in Jesus Christ in Philippians 3 as the true circumcision, as those who worship through the Spirit of God and who boast in Christ Jesus. We notice in the first seven verses that the confidence of genuine believers is not in flesh, but in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Starting in verse 8 of chapter 3, Paul reveals just how important Christ is to his own mindset. So as he continues to further describe a Christ-centered mindset, he gets quite personal. He talks about his own disposition, his own desires, his own life, and his own way of thinking. As a matter of fact, as I said in the introductory sermon to Philippians a while ago, there's a a good portion of this whole book that's about Paul the Apostle. To my count, 70% of the verses in the book of Philippians are about Paul himself. So we asked in the intro, how does that make you feel? Yet what we soon learn as we read through this four-chapter book is that this book, when, when Paul tells his own story, he's doing so for a specific reason. This isn't pride or arrogance that would cause him to do this, but the Holy Spirit leads him to tell his own story because he emphasizes the importance and the value of the person, Jesus Christ. So in particular, as we go throughout our sermon today in the next few weeks, we'll discover that although, although Paul has much to say about himself, these verses aren't really much about him at all because Paul uses his own story to tell us about Jesus. I like how one commentator put it that I was reading this week. He said, Nowhere else in Paul's letters does he make so clear and with such feeling 
uh, how vitally important the person of Christ was to him. And how tremendous was the impact of the resurrected Christ upon his own life and his own outlook as he does here in these verses. That's why I love Philippians 3, 8 through 11. It's Paul talking about how much Jesus means to him. Look down in your Bible at Philippians 3 and verse 8. Paul says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain unto the resurrection of the dead. And so for the next several weeks, we'll look at closely at the, the mindset of Paul. And we'll see that at the core or the center of his thinking was the person of Jesus Christ. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to help us pay close attention to this text and apply it to our lives. Let's pray. Dear Father, as we work our way through this passage, I pray that Paul's driving passion would incite within us the same sort of focus this week. And we pray this again for your own honor and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Verses 8 through 11 are one sentence, one powerful, complex sentence, where Paul describes what I'm going to call the ultimate objective in his life. In verse 7, just before this passage, Paul described the mindset that he had when he was converted, when he was saved. On the road to Damascus, if you look at verse 7, it says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. When, when Christ confronted Paul on the road to Damascus that's narrated for us in the book of Acts, Paul made an exchange. He gladly exchanged all of the things that he used to boast in for, in his own self-righteousness. Those things that he used to place confidence in to gain favor with God, he exchanged all of those things, whatever things he had, for the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He counted those things as loss for Jesus. So verse 7 describes, I believe, Paul's conversion. One verse in Philippians on Paul's conversion and the exchange that he made. But when you come to the first part of verse 8, we come to a major, major transition. Okay, And uh, the, the grammar, I know, how many of you like grammar? Like, I'm not really a grammar guy either, but the grammar here is very dramatic. As a matter of fact, most English translations do not communicate this well. 
The ESV, for instance, starts with the translation, indeed. See that in verse 8? Indeed, one word. The New American Standard does a little bit better than that, and it says, more than that, comma. And the King James, perhaps even a little bit better, yea, doubtless, and. However, none of these translations give full weight to the grammar, specifically the series of conjunctions and participles that Paul puts at the beginning of this passage. I mean, Paul puts five different conjunctions and participles at the beginning of verse 8 to show a dramatic shift. Matter of fact, if, if I were producing a translation which no one would want to read. You could start out verse 8 this way, but now therefore indeed even. (laughs) Now you see why my translation uh, never really got very far. And so Paul says something like this, but now therefore indeed even. And he gives us an, an extraordinary collection of conjunctions and participles that has no parallel anywhere else in the New Testament. Paul is making a major transition between verses 7 and 8. Verse 7 describes Paul's perspective when he was converted. Verse 8 describes his present perspective as a seasoned missionary church planter. As a matter of fact, to help you with this, I don't know if you write in your Bibles, but you might write down a little helpful reminder that between the historic events of verse 7 and verse 8 in your Bible, you have approximately 23 years. 23 years. In verse 7, Paul describes his estimate of Christ at his conversion. Verse 8, however, tells of his present disposition. The seasoned missionary church planter. And this present reflection comes from a man who's imprisoned for his faith in Rome. And I think that it's also important for us to realize that Paul's present evaluation of Christ has only grown greater since his conversion. Now, 23 years after his conversion, Paul has grown more emphatic in his evaluation of the value of Jesus Christ. There are two ways I think he's grown more emphatic that you can see very quickly in the text. First, Paul says that he now counts everything as loss. Whereas in verse 7, it was whatever he used to boast in. When he was converted, whatever I was boasting in, I count as loss. Now, now everything, all of it, We see that he's more emphatic as well because he not only counts all of these things as loss, he repeats loss, but he now also counts them as rubbish. Could be translated uh, uh, spoiled food, garbage, or refuse. All things compared to Christ are now like garbage or refuse to Paul. No doubt Paul treasured Christ more than anything else in this world. 
And so the very first part of verse 8, as the driving point of this text, I think you see Paul's main passion or objective in life. You see that he counts everything as loss and rubbish if it's compared to his passion, Jesus. One of my favorite things to do in life is to watch cartoons. I think I've talked to you about this, but uh, I like to do it with my family. Uh, Because the better part of watching cartoons is not watching the cartoons, it's watching my children watch the cartoons. I remember uh, years ago now watching a cartoon about a little squirrel named Scrat. Perhaps some of you have seen this part of, I think it was Ice Age. Now, I recognize there are various problems with Ice Age's theology. I'm not watching it for theology, I'm watching it for humor. Well, Scrat is one of the most hideous-looking cartoon characters you have ever seen in your life. He has these terribly long two front teeth, a scrawny body, and the largest bugged-out eyes you have ever seen on any creation. And as you're watching the cartoon, you realize that Scrat has an obsession. It's acorns, right? And so the movie starts out with Scrat trying to jam one more acorn into this large hollow-out tree. And uh, as the movie goes along, you see that Scrat's passion or love for acorns gets him into all sorts of trouble. Um, And so as the movie goes, he's constantly or he's always seen falling from the sky trying to catch his acorns. He's screaming about the potential loss of his acorn. He's running for his life with his acorn. You've seen this cartoon. It's, of course, a fun one to watch. In one scene, he's frozen in a block of ice only inches away from his acorn. His nose is the first to thaw. It begins to twitch, and then his eyes twitch, and then he finally is getting a finger free. And just before he gets his acorn, alas, the acorn is swept away by a wave. If you read that cartoon, you see there is one thing, one thing, that Scrat is concerned for, and that's acorns. How about you? What one thing drives you? Do you value Christ more than everything else in life? Do you count all other things as deficit, or garbage when compared to Christ. It means all other objects or things in life. It means all other relationships, even, shouldn't compare to our love for Christ. In the Gospels, Jesus, in Luke 14, in verse 26, gives a very strong passage about what it takes to be a disciple of his. He said, If anyone comes after me and does not hate his father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. That's some very strong language from Jesus. I think he's making a rhetorical effect here upon those who would read this or hear this. In other texts, Jesus defends the fact that we do need to love neighbors and families and so on. But his point here is something like this. Jesus 
is to be our first love. In other words, Luke 14, 26 seems to be saying that your love for Christ should, should be so strong that it makes every other love in this world almost look like hate. Is the ultimate objective in your life to know Christ and to love him? Having explained the nature of this driving passion in life in verse 8, Paul answers two related questions about it. And the next part of verse 8, I think he answers the question, why should we be counting everything as loss compared to Christ? Perhaps you're thinking, well, you know, it's no big deal to value Christ as highly as Paul so that everything else pales in comparison to him. So you ask, well, why should, why should I count everything else as lost compared to Christ? And uh, my answer would be that Paul answers that in the very next part of the verse. And he gives us two reasons why loving Christ like this should be so important. In the middle of verse 8, he shows us that we should count everything as lost because of, see this in the middle of verse 8, because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. First, we should count everything else as loss or rubbish when compared to Jesus because knowing Christ has surpassing value. It has supreme worth. It's better than anything else on this planet or off of it, for that matter. He says, I do this because of the surpassing value of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. Listen, all other things, relationships, plans, goals, objects in your life should not even budge the scale when knowing Christ is on the other side of the scale. And so we should count everything as lost because of the surpassing value that's found in knowing Christ Jesus. And secondly, the last part of verse 8, we should also count everything as lost so that we might gain Christ. Look in verse 8 in the middle part of that verse. He says, for this sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish And then this is what I want to draw your attention to, the purpose statement here. In order that I may gain Christ. So we should be figuring everything else as loss and and rubbish in order that we might gain Christ. Here Paul gave up pursuing other things for the purpose of gaining Christ. And the word gain means to acquire by effort or investment. One of the things that was perplexing a bit to me, there were several things in this passage this week as I worked through it that was difficult for me to, to gather at first or to grasp was what does Paul mean when he says to gain Christ? And how could the apostle say this? I mean, doesn't he already possess Christ? Didn't he get Christ when he was saved? I think that idea is true, but by saying it this way, Paul is describing his 
present attitude as a missionary church planter, and that is that he wants to gain even more of Christ. And fortunately, by God's good grace for us in this text, I think that that's also what he does in verses 9 through 11, is he, he begins telling us even more about what he means by gaining Christ. So the rest of this text fills out more fully what Paul means when he, hope, when he says that he hopes to gain Christ. And he, he answers that question for us in two ways. First, gaining Christ means to be found in union with him. Look at verse 9. What does gaining Christ mean? I think verse 9 helps us understand part of it. It says, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness that depends on faith. In verse 9 here, <clears throat> Paul writes that gaining Christ means that he'll be found in him. I think a part of this for Paul and what gaining Christ means is he speaks of his justification or the time that he was converted. And by being found in union with Christ, Paul will have, as verse 9 continues to say, he will have right standing that is not based upon his own attempts in the law of Moses, but he'll have a right standing from God that comes through faith in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And so if you were to ask me, what does gaining Christ mean, Pastor Brent? I would say first, to gain Christ means to be found in union with him, enjoying his righteousness, not my own. That's verse 9. But then he doesn't stop there. And gaining Christ for Paul meant more than simply salvation or justification. Yes, he got Christ then. But as you read in verses 10 and 11, he transitions quickly to show us that gaining Christ also means that Paul was committed to strive every day to get even more of him. For Paul, gaining Christ also spoke of his desire to get to know Jesus more every day in sanctification. That's what he shows us in verses 10 and 11. Look at verse 10. Don't you love verse 10? I have like seven life verses and this is one of them. It says that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. These verses imply that Paul is not content with the knowledge that he gained of Christ upon his conversion or even with his present knowledge of Christ as a more mature believer. He gives this prayer wish that I may know him. Paul wants more Knowledge of Christ. But how could this be? This is another thing that perplexed me this week. How could this be true of the Apostle Paul? I mean, Paul knew more about Jesus than perhaps any other person who's ever lived. I mean, he wrote the book on him. Paul articulates various places in the New Testament, the nature of the incarnation and birth of Jesus at a level that no other human author has. 
a level that continues to baffle theologians today. Paul explains the importance of the death and resurrection of Christ uh, in a way that helped give meaning to the very word gospel. Paul explains the person and work of Christ like no other person, including how Jesus fulfilled the office of prophet, priest, and king simultaneously. And so, through the illumination of the Holy Spirit, through the Spirit's enablement of Paul, Paul knew more about Christ than perhaps any of us, yet he says that he wants to know Jesus more. How could this be? Perhaps Paul realized that an entire lifetime is not enough time to be able to fully grasp the person and work of Jesus Christ. Or perhaps Paul is not speaking entirely here of an intellectual knowledge or a knowledge of theology or Christology proper as much as he is speaking of his desire to know Christ more personally and relationally. But again, in this text, Paul tells us a little bit more of what he means by his desire to know Christ. You say, Pastor, and what does it mean when Paul says he wants to know Christ? They say, look at the next two phrases. This is the beauty of the text of scriptures. Paul's continuing to tell us what he means by desire to know Christ in the next two phrases. This is a twofold way he desired to know Christ. Knowing Christ involves experience of the power of his resurrection. Paul says, I want to know Christ. That is, I want to experience the power of his resurrection. The scriptures tell us if we had the time, we could trace this through the New Testament. We won't do that. But that Christ was resurrected by the power of the Holy Spirit. The power of the resurrection would then be the power that Christ received from God's spirit. So Paul says, I want to experience the power that Jesus experienced at his resurrection. And then he continues to to tell us how he wants to know Christ. He wants to know Christ. That is, Paul wants to experience partnership with Jesus in his sufferings. In other words, Paul wants to participate in Christ's sufferings. As I said, as I went throughout this text, there were several things that perplexed me. Okay, it's a a deeply profound text, is is it not? One of the things that perplexed me, just to be honest with you, I mean, this is the sort of stuff that pastors like lose whole days over. Okay. Like, if it perplexed me, I'm going to give it to you. So it's perplexing to you for the rest of the week. One of the things that perplexed me and that I, I really didn't see the commentaries really addressing was why this order of power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. Why resurrection? Than suffering, because if we're talking about Jesus, it starts suffering and then resurrection. So, why does Paul say, I want to know the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings? And the best answer I could find or articulate for that is I think Paul lists them this way because this is how he experiences Christ in his own life. And so the power of 
God that resurrected Christ also made Paul alive at his conversion on the road to Damascus. So Paul has already begun to experience the power of the resurrection in the very fact that he was converted miraculously by God. But since his resurrection power experience at conversion, Paul began to experience partnership with Christ in sufferings too. And so I think that perhaps instead of necessarily a picture of the, the suffering and the righteousness of Christ being in Paul's mind, he actually has the picture of the Christian life in mind. And that we're miraculously converted through the power, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then a lifetime, a lifetime, if necessary, of partnering with Jesus through suffering. And so that's why I think Paul puts it this way. The last thing that truly perplexed me about this passage is why would Paul want to suffer like Jesus? Is he just a glutton for punishment? I think perhaps one or two reasons might be helpful to us as we consider Paul. I think perhaps Paul wanted to suffer like Christ so that he might be able to relate better to Jesus and to get to know him more in that way. I just use a common illustration to to, to really try to picture what I'm saying here. Let's imagine that you are a Civil War fanatic. And so as a Civil War fanatic, uh, I've got family members like this who just love Civil War history uh, because you're a Civil War fanatic, you would go to some of the battlefields, battle scenes. Let's say that you've got a particular general that you're really interested in. You want to know all about this person, so you've read everything you can about the person. And then you go and you visit the battlefield where this general led a host or an army in battle. And so you, you not only want to read the books, but you actually want to see the field. You've read all about it. You know where all the troops are coming from. You know all the strategies, but you want to see the field where this person led an army. And if possible, imagine the glory or the opportunity to sit in the tent. To sit in the tent of the general. And to consider the decisions that he made. And the forces that he faced. Why does Paul want to partner with Jesus in his sufferings? I'm going to suggest it may be that by partnering and joining with Jesus in his sufferings, it may be that he gets to know him more. Gets to more fully understand. He walks in the steps of Jesus. He feels what Jesus felt. That's how much Paul wanted to know Jesus. He was willing to join with him in his sufferings so that he could experience what Jesus experienced. Or perhaps Paul wanted to suffer like Christ so that the story of his own life might powerfully trace the story of Christ's life. I think no doubt Paul realized that Christ's life powerfully impacted the world for God. And so Paul wants to follow the pattern set by Christ so that perhaps by God's good grace he might be able to make an impact like Christ did upon this world. And he's willing to be like him in his death, that by any means possible he would attain to the resurrection from the dead, where he will see the object of his driving obsession, Jesus.
As we close, Paul was extremely Christ-focused in his mindset, wasn't he? Wasn't he? How about you? You come week after week to church with a Bible that you never read? You fail to pursue knowing Christ day by day in God's word? The heartbeat of the Apostle Paul should really challenge most, if not all of us, to bring Christ to the center of our entire disposition so that he is more important to us than any other object. My phone, that doesn't compare. The TV, no comparison, no question. Right? Jesus is much, much better. No other relationship. You love Christ so much that it causes your love for other people, even in your own family, to pale in comparison. Knowing Christ must be the driving obsession of our lives. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the privilege of coming here today. We pray, Lord, that you would take Philippians 3, that you would ingrain it upon our hearts. Lord, may we have this desire to know Christ supremely. We pray for your grace and your glory to show us how to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together sing about knowing Christ. All I once held dear